0: Welcome to ESSA's 2020 Nominal Interest Podcasts. My name is Amber, and I will be hosting this session. The aim of this series is to promote discussion in the economics domain, but in addition, to allow you to hear the perspectives from inspiring and committed staff from the Faculty of Business and Economics from the University of Melbourne. Please note that we endure to make the substance of discussion accessible to all listeners, irrespective of what year you are in throughout your course. In this session, we are fortunate enough to have Associate Professor David Byrne from the Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Melbourne. Having graduated with a PhD from Canada's Queen's University, Associate Professor David Byrne commenced at the University of Melbourne as a lecturer. In his time, he has published many works on topics like price discrimination and petrol price cycles. He has also been recognised for his teaching excellence, receiving the Carol Johnston Award for Excellence in Teaching in 2019. To kick things off, let's start with a couple of questions. So could you tell us a bit more about the research you've been working on lately?
1: All right, so thanks, Amber, and uh, good to be talking to you and everybody else. Hopefully there's a few listening. Um, Yeah, research-wise, I work in an area called Empirical Industrial Organization, so it's kind of data meets IO. Um, What we try to do with data is understand what consumers' preferences look like, things that affect how they make decisions like information frictions or switching costs or these types of things. Uh, So that's on the demand side of the market and on the supply side, we try to understand what do firms costs look like? What technologies do they use? How do they compete? Are they competing? Maybe they're colluding. So that's kind of the broad area I work in. Um, Some of the recent work um, we published a paper 2019 looking at uh, the emergence of tacit collusion. Or what could look like tacit collusion in the australian petrol market led by bp um, so that was sort of a lot about how do firms figure out how to coordinate and increase their profits if consumers aren't really responding to rising prices so that was one area okay some recent work uh, i've been doing so i've uh run field experiments in markets mm-hmm. so uh i've worked with a colleague of mine leslie martin and a phd student jashi Na. we uh Last, a couple of years ago, we built a call center at the University of Melbourne, and our call center called the Call Centers of Electricity Retailers in the state of Victoria. Yep. And we started negotiating over electricity prices to figure out how firms price discriminate based on how informed or uninformed you are in a negotiation. Um, and also looking at what do prices look like that firms post publicly and then how do they negotiate from those? And so how do they engage in price discrimination based on your ability and willingness to search for prices and bargain on the phone? So taking a, I've studied a lot of the applications of my work to energy markets, so petrol, yes. um, electricity, doing some work in water, trying to understand ways to conserve water and help people overcome choice and informational frictions there. So yeah, broadly, that's the type of work I kind of do.
0: Oh, fantastic. Seems like you've been very busy.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> if if I recall from your past lectures, you seem pretty passionate about the world of big data and artificial intelligence models in the context of nonlinear models. So, I also noticed you made a publication on fuel watch and fuel check. So, do you think we can use the data contained on these to our advantage in the future?
1: Yeah, so fuel watch and fuel check if people haven't heard about them, they're platforms online that help you look for uh, retail gasoline prices and f- find the best price at a point in time or help you shop day to day. Yeah, for sure. So a lot of the work we've done looks at how cons- how these platforms, right? So you think let's inform everybody about prices and governments love these platforms and there's these all these emerging policies coming out, like the consumer data, right, in Australia – open data in the UK. So the idea is empower people with their data and their and information, empower their choices. And if people make better choices, that will discipline companies charging prices that are too high or offering inferior products. So there's this real view that information and markets is a good thing uh, and they can help create efficiencies. Um, a lot of the work we've done though, it looks at, well, when you inform all the consumers, you're actually informing all the companies at the exact same time and so what we what there's less research on and that's where we've been doing a lot of work like that bp paper i talked about on on petrol collusion um or tacit collusion is uh is about firms also use this data to figure out how to coordinate so how can firms gain these platforms to actually raise prices so they have the exact opposite impact that's sort of intended and and so you know, this big data, whether it it benefits supply or demand, some of the work, a lot of the work we're seeing, a lot of the work that I see overseas seems to suggest actually it can often benefit supply more than demand. It can raise prices because firms coordinate once they can see each other and react to each other. And then AI with pricing algorithms and things that just takes it to the next level. So we're seeing with, as far as we know, human beings, are able to use this data to coordinate. Um, there's very, kind of on the frontier of research uh, is looking at, well, if we look at AI and algorithms that kind of, you know, predictive algorithms, and if we have two algorithms compete or, or coordinate with each other, um, the evidence is all coming out that both in the lab and in the field, robots are able to exploit big data to coordinate. And if they can do that, you can worry that AI can lead to things like systemic price uh, collusion. And then it becomes a question of regulation. What can we do as an antitrust authority, right? If you're the ACCC, do we then have to regulate the code, Mm -hmm. right? Do we say like AI code can only do certain things because otherwise they'll naturally start to collude? So, yeah, no, the the, the sort of Mm -hmm. it's a real frontier area of research right now in, in, in I.O with data is how how are these algorithms going to influence competition and do we need new antitrust policies to try to head that off
0: okay excellent and moving back to this idea about regulation so a common debate centered around you know adam smith and friedman economics is the role of government in regulating certain markets so do you believe that this concept Is applied to electricity and gas markets effectively or do you think that government should exert a greater influence instead in your opinion
1: um so there's different parts of the market to think about so you know the Australian market deregulated uh, you know more than a decade ago Mm. Um, It seems you know right so 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 one of the pros to having competition and deregulation or the the stated pro is that um competitive markets tend to be better at creating price signals to attract investment and innovation and you know can more rapidly bring technology onto an energy you know in the energy space into the grid you hear this quite a bit so if we have competition We'll be able to get more rapid, you know, solar panel adoption, batteries, these sorts of things, right? Um, Solar, you know, um, uh, electronic vehicles, batteries, and solar. Um, And, you know, in the retail sector, for example, with retail markets, uh, retail competition will lead to uh, new pricing plans and apps and tech and all this stuff. and, And it'll really tech up the energy sector very quickly. The, the challenge we run into with regulation is you know quite often a lot of these models assume um you know a few things that there is competition uh that they're pretty competitive markets i mean i think one problem we see I mean so a big push for why we might need regulation is these are still you know sometimes natural monopolies we're going to see these sort of dominant electricity players emerge because there's large fixed costs mm-hmm. to supplying electricity so there's Market mark a power push for why you'd want to have regulatory oversight. Um, on the consumer side, it, when we look at retail competition, one of the major failures of it is it just didn't account for the fact that nobody cares about electricity. And if we face information frictions that make it hard for us to understand electricity, the prices we pay, because those are really complicated, nonlinear pricing schemes that people can't really understand – if we're in a world where people are confused and aren't making informed and choices, yeah. firms take advantage of it and they'll raise price. So, you know, in that case, again, you need government to step in to inject the transparency that's needed in the market. And that's exactly what we've been seeing in Australia very recently is, is coming up with um, what amount to sort of versions of consumer protection laws and computer, consumer protection type policies to try to create price transparency and make it easy to compare plans. So you know, the fact that firms kind of naturally become large and the fact that consumers face information frictions really suggests that, yeah, there's going to be a role for government in these types of markets uh, to ensure that firms aren't, you know, kind of abusing their market power. And I think one other big one would be that, um, you know, these dominant firms have first mover advantages. They're trying to dig in with the technology that they already have invested in the grid. and, And, you know, they might not have, Incentives to quickly write off these assets and bring all these sort of, kind of future technologies on the grid, right? If so, you know the competitive system really requires a situation where we can really disrupt dominant, say, coal-based energy producers if we're trying to, you know, transition to a green economy. So there's even, you know, sort of a, in terms of transitioning and the speed of transition to a low-carbon grid, there might even be a role for government there and trying to incubate new businesses and and ensure that they're getting a fair go at uh, a, a kind of breaking into the market, disrupting the existing producers and yes. so that the existing dominant players don't just sort of uh, try to lock themselves in and delay those types of investments and, and, and squash those types of potential competitors.
0: Yes, interesting. A journal article you published alongside Andre Lenors and Leslie A. Martin investigated electricity monthly elasticity demand and, you know, mm-hmm. to provide some context to listeners, elasticity in the field of economics is referring to how sensitive consumer purchasing habits are to prices. And what were your key findings of this study? And do you think that this puts us as consumers at risk of being charged really, really high prices?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we, we ran a field experiment with a retail electricity company where we randomized prices people paid. And you know, we couldn't randomize prices up, we couldn't charge people more randomly. So all we offered discounts and we wanted to see the extent to which people would adjust what their demand elasticity was with respect mm-hmm. to these discounts. And so we offered some discounts ranging from 10% lower prices to upwards to 90% lower prices. Wow. So we were offering some huge discounts yeah. and we basically found over a two or three month time horizon, mm-hmm. that demand is completely inelastic um and so it's just saying that the short run or short to intermediate run demand elasticity is fully non-sensitive to price changes and so yeah that that immediately means you have sort of uh completely inelastic demand curve and, and firms are going to just enjoy a ton of market power in the face of that mm-hmm. um you know it, it has issues there's going to be if there's uh, reductions in wholesale costs if people have really inelastic demand we're going to yeah. see a slower pass through of those reductions in costs and these things really sort of matter right especially for people on fixed income or low income consumers for whom energy is an essential product and it's a big part of their disposable income yeah. so yeah that was the first study to really look at experimentally what demand elasticity looks like over, over an intermediate horizon lots of people have studied like hourly demand or very high frequency demand price shocks we looked at these longer shocks and found yeah they don't people don't respond at high frequencies and they don't respond at longer frequencies either and and you know we chalked that up to uh it takes you know time for people's to adjust their habits like the it takes a long time for sort of responses to energy prices to come in and so you know, even just, you know, for regulation, from that point of view, if you adjust prices or regulate prices or influence market prices, it just means that the responses are going to be that much more sluggish if people aren't responding to those price changes. Because if people don't respond to price changes, then firms don't have incentives either to necessarily respond to price changes. Okay. Yeah.
0: Very interesting. And, Going on to a bit more about you, so for the keen readers of economics, do you have a favorite co-author or any inspiring reads, recommendations?
1: Favorite co-author? It's like picking. No, I mean, I have good friends, Leslie, Martin, who you mentioned. We've been writing a lot of papers together. She's fantastic. And... Uh, Nick Deruz at the University of Sydney is sort of my colleague who we work, you know, Leslie and I work more on the energy and the environmental side. And Nick oh, yeah. and I work a lot more on the collusion side of the research. So those are sort of my long standing co-authors. As far as things I've been reading, economics rise. I mean, I think nowadays I, when I'm reading a book, I'm trying to do everything but economics. Um <laughs> Uh, even though, even still, though, I mean, I'm reading Bob Iger's book now at the moment, which has a ton of economics on, you know, how he built the Disney empire and how he yeah. just, how he made all these decisions mm-hmm. facing imperfect information and negotiations, trying to buy up all these companies like Marvel and yeah. Star Wars and that Lucasfilm and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, I'm, as, a, as an academic, you're, a lot of your time reading is reading journal articles. Um reading uh you know lots lots of things like that as a referee and just hearing about interesting papers so you know one that jumps out that i've read in the last year there's an, a paper there's a paper where uh i forget exactly where it was but they used sort of historical really old data from like 15 1600s and empirical models for studying international trade and they use data and economic theory to uncover lost cities in like the Middle East, I believe, that were around. And they, and there were arguments in other fields whether cities existed here. And these economic models revealed that based on trading activity, these lost cities must have been in the locations that, yeah, you know, these kind of historians were suggesting. So it was sort of like Indiana Jones type uh, economics. So that, that was kind of a really cool paper to read yeah. um, in the Quarterly Journal of Economics.
0: Yeah, I love that one. <laughs>
1: Definitely yeah.
0: keep my eye out for that one. And yeah. Are there any aspects, so you came from Canada, am I correct? So are there any aspects, you know, about Canada as a researcher that you really miss or any really good memories that, you know, stuck with you for a very long time?
1: As a, from a researcher, I mean, I did my PhD in Canada. um, So those were my last memories of being an economist there and, you know, doing PhDs, it's a lot of work, but learning a lot and, and, you know, big fond memory I have from PhD are my friends from them. Yeah. So you know, my classmates from PhD are in where they're in Hong Kong, London, Shanghai, uh, on Toronto in Ontario, yeah. Bogota in Colombia. Like we're all over the world, but we stay in touch. It's just you go through graduate school and you yeah. kind of become friends for life with your classmates because yeah. you kind of learn and grow a lot. Um, but as far as like doing economics and economics in Australia versus Canada versus other countries, I think one thing that's amazing is the culture of being an econo- economics professor and economics faculty. Mm. It's remarkably consistent across the world. If I went to an economics department in Spain tomorrow, yep. the conversations wouldn't be that different or the types of people I'd run into wouldn't be that different than uh, in in Melbourne day to or, day or in the U.S. or in Canada. So, I always find that a remarkable thing when I visit economics departments, just how how strong the economics culture is amongst faculty and the types of com- conversations we just naturally drift towards. Um, you know, and I think that's because economists are all sort of trained in micro-macro metrics. And as, I know as an undergrad that sometimes feels like it's like being gr- grilled into you. Yeah. But it really gives you a common language and toolbox to think about, you know, really important problems and problems that don't have clear or any kind of potential solutions. So, you know, it gives you sort of this, you're speaking, even though we're all speaking, you know, English or whatever, or whatever language is in the local country, the the language of economics is sort of constant, you know, kind of around the world and the types of conversations you have.
0: Yeah, terrific. And so you also are an econometrics one lecturer at the University of Melbourne, right?
1: Yeah. Yes. Yep teach 400 and 400 to 500 students introductory econometrics every year.
0: How long have you been teaching that subject for?
1: So I took over in 2018. Oh. So I just went through my sort of third iteration of it. Um, it was very different this year because four weeks into term, we had to flip all the way to virtual <laughs> within a week, which yes. was pretty intense. And, but I had a great team of sort of tutors, my tutorial coordinator and, and faculty support. That allowed us to sort of do that, Um, which I know I've been teaching it for about three years now.
0: And do you have any words of wisdom for, you know, students looking to take that subject who want to do very well? Any statistically significant um, patterns?
1: Right. Um, You know, I think econometrics, I think this is probably true for micro macro too. I think the thing with econometrics is you can only really learn econometrics from just doing econometrics and so that's why a lot of you know your econometrics econometrics profs are always trying to assign lots of problems lots of toots and we do that with the expectation that or the hope that students work independently on these projects they don't just sort of wait for solutions i think a real if you're not if you don't find yourself stuck constantly you're not learning and so one thing I've noticed with top performing students especially consultation hours yes is they've put the work in before consultation hours so my you know the best students come in it's clear they've worked through everything on their own or and 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 creating study groups help a lot with this so often you're working with a few peers trying to sort these problems out and they get stuck and unstuck and when you get unstuck that's learning and you won't forget in office hour and consultation hours i think as a lecturer one of the things i get the biggest buzz if you will out of is seeing a student going from being stuck to unstuck and you can tell they've been struggling with something or they're trying to figure out something and and as professors i mean we can see if the work's been put in it's yes. very clear from the questions that get asked yes and it's great sort of turning those lights on. And cause there's a few things. One is the students put the work in and they're not gonna forget what was just taught. Like that's that's now ingrained on them, right? Um, so that's sort of one thing, um, you know, and, and you just know, again, those students will be back next week mm-hmm. stuck again, you know? So I think that's the biggest thing is just working independently with small peer groups and try to get stuck as much as you can and then taking advantage of your resources, your tutors, your, your lecturers, your discussion boards yeah. to be getting unstuck. Because once you get unstuck, you don't forget it ever.
0: Yes. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on a lot of those points as well. I personally have you know, found that using the discussion board was very effective. Having even just yes. other students um, you know, taking a shot Absolutely. at you know, answering questions is very useful. And yeah. just another aspect of econometrics one is that you're introduced sure. to coding and usually yep. it's for the first time. So you use this coding language called R. Do you have any tips on how you became so competent in using R? Did you have, say, like a, a bank of commands that you referred to or was it just a lot of repetition?
1: Um, so, you know, I think, so before teaching it, Econometrics uh, one. I had never used R in my life. Wow! So I just developed it from scratch. Now I had worked with all kinds of other programming languages during my PhD: mm-hmm. MATLAB, um, Python, yes. um, programming, like so, so similar programming languages. And one thing with programming languages is, is once you've learned how to learn a language, you can learn other ones. And so the reason why when I took over the subject in 2018 and, and brought in R straight away yes. is it, I mean, there's a few reasons for it. One is R, R is free and it yes. becomes very easy for every student to get, you know, the program on their computer. And it, 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 there's nothing better than walking into a lecture theater, seeing all those laptops open and R everywhere and people working on code and data and trying to understand what's in the data. Um, so it's free It's powerful. It allows you to do everything you'd want in econometrics. It allows you to do data science and big data, machine learning, AI, all that stuff's in our, it allows you to do mapping. It allows you to integrate with Google maps. It allows you to work with satellite data and, and, and all kinds of huge and unstructured data sets, right? So, so it integrates well, it opens up all kinds of future pathways of data analysis. And because it's powerful and because it's free and because it's state of the art, Businesses and governments are increasingly using it all, the, all around the world. So for me, introducing it into Econometrics, um, it was free. It was it's in demand in the labor market. You know, it, it tools up the students with um, useful skills and it forces them to learn a language. Right. Yeah. So they might not use R again in their life. Mm-hmm. But if they go on to, you know, they, they go to employer and they say we use Gauss or we use Java or we use yeah. C or whatever. Well, you've learned a language before, so you know what the process is of learning a language, right? And so that was sort of my push as to why we would bring in our, and, you know, I sort of was self-taught and we, you know, through the tutorials, we provide pre-coded kind of scripts so people can get used to understanding how commands work and what they do. And, And so that it's not just purely programming, they can focus on build you know, econometric modeling, and co- intuition around results, how, you know, and how to exploit the data. And then through the assignments, they're doing original coding projects to, to further learn the platform. So yeah, it's been a great experience. And I think the feedback we've had from students has been first rate with our, I mean, I think all the way around, I haven't regretted it and yes. would have would, reintroduced it 10 times out of 10, you know, if I had to do it all over again.
0: Good. Definitely, like even Quantitative Methods too. I'm pretty sure, has also moved on to using R as well um, last mm-hmm. semester, I think.
1: Yeah, I think it's taking o- – over I mean, when I took over Econometrics 1, another faculty member, David Harris, was taking over Econometrics 2. Yes. And at the time we were taking over these two subjects, we streamlined R and yes. we streamlined the textbook across the two. And then now that's spilled into – all the other econometric subjects at the uni because because it's the it's as i said it's a state-of-the-art language it's accessible and students can use it you know they can learn it
0: yes terrific and those are all the questions that we had for you today so to bring things to a close on behalf of essa we'd like to thank you for your insightful comments and for taking the time to sit down and chat with us today so thank not you not a problem
1: <laughs> thanks amber <laughs>
0: I'm sure a lot of listeners at home will have learned something today or at least gained an additional angle of perspective. So for the listeners out there, we appreciate the time you have taken to listen in. Stay tuned for our next upcoming podcasts. And if you haven't already, follow Esther on our Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn pages so that you can engage in other forms of published content and events with our favourite sponsors. Goodbye for now.